another episode of the Fort Worth Freedom Review. We are a show about local politics that aims to get more people engaged in local issues. My name is Anthony Sosa, and I'm here today with Thomas Moore to dive deep into some ideas that are currently circulating in our community uh, and in our nation kind of as a whole and kind of, you know, ponder the implications of these ideas. Uh, I think it's important to at least the very least kind of recognize that these things are happening um, and kind of go from there as far as their significance and what they mean. I'll leave that to you to decide. Uh, we, we here at the Fort Worth Freedom Review certainly want you, the listener, to you know, check our sources, read these documents, and kind of come to your own conclusions on them. Obviously, we have our own biases and our own perspectives and opinions, and we share those. Uh, but we encourage you to check the source material and maybe come to your own conclusions. Uh, we're going to essentially cover Ur Fascism by Umberto Eco today. We're going to look at the concept of fascism and like what, how that is defined. You know, there's obviously many ways you can define it, but Eco lived under it for the first, you know, good chunk of his life. He grew up in fascist Italy. We'll talk about him. So he's got a, a, a certain perspective on it. I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of people kind of use this as a, as a baseline. Uh, we're going to use that to kind of compare the, these tendencies to other things that are happening in the Christian nationalist sphere here in America and how that sphere is kind of gaining, you know, I don't know if it's getting popularity or just getting attention. But either way, this this perspective obviously hasn't gone away and unfortunately has overlap with fascism. So we'll detail, detail that in this episode. This podcast is made possible by the Justice Reform League, a Fort Worth-based nonprofit you can sign up for our Substack at our website, justicereformleague.net, where we occasionally post op-ed type articles. If you would like to submit something to the Substack or have any episode ideas or additional stories that you would like us to cover, you can contact us on our Twitter at FW Review. Please give us a follow. Uh, you can hit us up on Instagram at Fort Worth Freedom Review, and you can email us at fwfreedomreview at gmail.com. Live and alive in DFW. <laughs> live and alive in DFW. That's a that's a great way to put it. Uh, it's good. It's good to be live. So that from Hassan. Nice, nice. I like it. Well, sweet. Well, um, this week we're going to be talking about. So we, I did this, Thomas. I, tell me if I'm wrong or not. Did, have I feel like you weren't on the podcast last time I brought this up, but were you were you when we went through like the Ur fascism list, like kind of spontaneously in the middle of an episode? I wasn't here for that. I was here when we went through uh the mercy culture stuff, but I wasn't okay. here when we went through Ur fascism. Okay. So this is uh we and it was like I don't even remember what episode it was in, and it's not what the episode was about. It wasn't in the title, so I couldn't it's one of the early episodes. But I think now is the time to like formally reintroduce the topic. Some listeners weren't listening back then. And like now I think it's <laughs> even more relevant than then. So I kind of want to cover this article that was written by Umberto Eco in 1995. Um, 
and it's like 11 pages long. I, I We're not going to obviously read or cover the entire thing, but we're going to kind of focus on some of the key points of it. Um, but for you listener, like if you're interested in this, I, it's not a long read at all. I highly recommend you just kind of check it out and ponder on it. Um, Umberto Eco is or was um, a survivor of World War II. He was born and raised in fascist Italy. He was born in 1932. Um, Mussolini went to, came into power and declared Italy like a fascist nation in 1922. That's when he like took, uh, took power. So this is like a decade in to fascism in Italy. Uh, and 32 is when Hitler kind of, I believe, is when Hitler kind of formally seizes power in Germany. So this is kind of that time period in Europe, you know, things are leading up to the World War II. This is the like what he's born into. And so he's got a very unique perspective, you know, I, th I think you could say a pretty probably solid perspective on what fascism means or what it means to him. You know, these ideas can always be interpreted differently. But he kind of draws on this. He essentially in this article in the 90s, he wrote this in 95. So he's an old, old man by the time he writes this and he's kind of reflecting back. On, on some of those things. And he kind of comes up with a framework of different points. I don't know how many is it? 14 points? Let me look real quick. 12 points, 11, 12, 14. Yeah, 14 points that he kind of says, you know, this, this is describes fascism. So I want to go through this and then I want to have a conversation about evangelicalism and like Christian nationalism here in America and kind of use this as a framework and kind of keep this in mind and see what similarities, if any, but I think we'll come to see that there are some similarities um, to these ideas and like what the implications of those mean and stuff. So let's, um, I guess I'll start off kind of just, I'm not going to read uh, verbatim from the entire document, but I am going to, there's a preface in this before he gets to the list. And so I'm just going to read a couple of points here that I've highlighted in regards to like his personal life. And then in regards to fascism all right so he says in 1942 starts off the article this way in 1942 at the age of 10 i received the first provincial award of ludi juveniles a voluntary compulsory competition for young italian fascists that is every young italian i elaborated with rhetorical skill on the subject should we die for the glory of mussolini and the immortal destiny of italy my answer was positive i was a smart boy um, and then he kind of later on says in April 1945, the partisans took over in Milan. Two days later, they arrived in a small town where I was living at the time. It was a moment of joy. The main square was crowded with people singing and waving flags, calling in loud voices for uh, Mimo, the partisan leader of that area, a former uh, Maraschiallo, uh, not can't do Italian, I apologize, uh, of the uh, Cabananeri. Mimo joined the supporters of Mussolini's successor and lost a leg. Okay, blah, 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 blah. I was waiting for this speech because my whole childhood had been marked by the great historic speeches of Mussolini. And so now he's kind of, now we got a new guy in town, a new person kind of preaching ideas. Uh, and he's going to kind of, you know, talk about some of these things. Okay. He says essentially further on on the next page if Mussolini's fascism was based on the idea of a charismatic ruler, on corporatism, on the utopia of imperial fate of Rome, on an imperialistic will to conquer new territories, on an exacerbated nationalism, on an ideal of an entire nation regimented in black shirts, on the rejection of parliamentary democracy, on anti-Semitism, then I have no difficulty in acknowledging that today 
the Italian Alienza Nazionale, born from the post-war fascist party, uh, and certainly a right-wing party, has very little to do with the old fascism. Now, he's talking in the 90s, and he's talking about Italy, but it's kind of weird to me that, like, that list that he just kind of read, like, does appear, at least I think in America, some of those things do seem to be very much a part of, you know, rather than the imperial fate of Rome, but like you could say West Western culture in general, um, empire, the will to conquer nations, nationalism, uh, rejection of democracy. Like we're seeing that, you know, you can just point to January 6th if you want to do that. So I don't know. What do you, have you heard of this guy, Thomas? Are you familiar with this? What do you think of, of someone kind of with this perspective and insight i have not but i think it's really imp important that we listen to someone with that perspective considering he lived through a lot of this you know so much gets lost to history or gets lost in the fact that we've had it pretty good for the past hundred years you know yeah especially for the most part we've had we had it pretty good but we 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 we've had it so good that we don't know what bad really feels like yeah that's a good point. Uh, I think you're, we're, we're kind of spoiled here in America. Uh, and maybe, you know, you could say that that, you know, has, it could lead us down this path where we don't, we don't understand what we're risking and what we're losing. But again, this is, you know, over the past hundred years in other parts of the world, uh, you can look and see, okay, this, you know, there was a fall, there was totalitarianism, there was a dictatorship. I think Iran, I, I don't, this isn't going to apply today, but the, the, you know, the fall of Iran, uh, in 1979, the you know the the new Islamic regime that took power then that's a really good example because you had a democratic Middle Eastern country for a couple of decades before that, and uh, that's you know so mm. th there are people around the world that are living today, many people who have experienced these things before, uh, and they carry that with them. But here in America, we're just kind of you know unless we know these people, unless we're fortunate enough to know these people, uh, blind to these sorts of things. But what one thing that I am um, thought was interesting that he kind of points about uh in re in regards to fascism at that time is that a um he says fascism in italy had no special philosophy and this is going to kind of eventually get us to the points there there's not a coherent ideology uh, he says mussolini did not have any philosophy he only had rhetoric and so it really is this not what you say but how you say it kind of mentality that we're going to, as, as I kind of reference different articles and different things, as we go through this, we're going to see this is going to kind of a theme that's going to come up again and again. Um, he's, he calls, uh, he quote says fascism was a quote, fuzzy totalitarianism. Um, that, that, you know, a college of different philosophical and political ideas, a beehive of contradictions. Um, can one conceive of a truly totalitarian movement that was able to combine monarchy with revolution? The Royal Army with Mussolini's personal Milesia. Uh, the grant of privileges to the church with state education extolling violence. Absolute state control with a free market. These are, these are contradictions that existed in fascist Italy. Um, and so he's kind of using this to demonstrate, you know, this, this doesn't, this isn't coherent and doesn't make sense. So I'm, I'm going to kind of continue on. We'll get to the end. And then Thomas, I kind of want you to kind of go down this list for us. Um, right before we get okay. to that list, he, uh, I'm on page five, kind of towards the bottom. He, um, 
the contradictory picture I describe was not the result of tolerance, but of political and ideological discombobulation. But it was a rigid discombobulation, a structured confusion. Fascism was philosophically out of joint, but emotionally was firmly fasted to some archetypal foundations. So I come to my second point. There was only one Nazism. We cannot label Franco's hyper-Catholic flangelism as Nazism, since Nazism is fundamentally pagan, polytheistic, and anti-Christian. Which is interesting. I, I want to know how he comes to that conclusion and what, is, what his reasoning for that. That's, I think that's very interesting. But anyways, um, but the fascist game can be paralyzed, I'm sorry, can be played in many forms, and the name of the game does not change. The notion of fascism is not unlike Wittgenstein's notion of a game. A game can either be competitive or not. It can, can require, require some special skill or none. It can or cannot involve money. Games are different activities that display only some family, quote, family resemblance, as Wittgenstein puts it. He says, consider the following sequence, one, two, three, four, A, B, C, B, C, D, C, D, E, D, E, F. And then he kind of goes into some game theory in regards to all this. I'm not going to get into that skipping on. He says, fascism become uh, an all-purpose term because one can eliminate from a fascist regime one or more features, and it will still be recognized as fascist. So again, kind of the, the incoherent, the discombobulationness. this is part of it. And he kind of, you know, says... Uh, in spite of this fuzziness, I think it's possible to outline a list of features that are typical of what I would like to call ur-fascism or eternal fascism. These features cannot be organized into a system. Many of them contradict each other, and they are also typical of other kinds of despotism or fanaticism. But it is enough that one of them be present to allow fascism to coagulate around it. So he comes up with this list, these 14 things, and this is kind of, let's, let's go down the list. Everybody loves lists, right? And let's just kind of right. marinate on these. So, so Thomas, take us away. So the first feature of, of your fashionism is the cult of tradition. So they're talking about traditionalism here. Traditionalism is, of course, much older than fascism. Not only was it typical of counter-revolutionary Catholic, Catholics thought after the French revolutions, but it, it was born in the late Hellenistic era as a reaction to classical Greek rationalism. In the Mediterranean basin, people of different religions, most of them indulgently accepted by the Roman pantheon, started dreaming of a revelation received at the dawn of human history. This revelation, according to the traditional mystique, had remained for a long time concluded, uh, concealed under the veil of forgotten languages. Egyptian hieroglyphs and the Celtic runes and the scrolls of those little-known religions of Asia. This new culture had to be syncretistic. Syncretism is not only, as the dictionary says, the combination of different forms of belief or practice, such, such a, a combination must tolerate contradictions. Each of the original messages contains a silver of, silver of wisdom, and whenever they see they seem to say different or incompatible things. It's only because all are alluding allegorically to the same prime evil truth. As a consequence, there can be... Well, sorry. As a consequence, there can be no advancement of learning. Truth has been already spelled out once and for all, and we can only keep interpreting its obscure message. 
There we go. When it's only I till, think that, I yeah. think that, that's probably good. And that that line that you just read, I think, really kind of lays this out. There can be no advancement of learning. The truth has already been spelled out once and for all, and we can only keep interpreting its obscure message, which to me sounds like you know God's divine plan or whatever. He works in mysterious ways. Um, and so it's this, I think, could we say this ties into maybe an anti-intellectualism, perhaps, like maybe roots for that sort of thing? This cult of tradition, this focus on the inherent past. I mean, and this is conservative. Whoa, in, in whoa, general, you're right? being a little woke right now, bro. <laughs> Uh, we're going to get woke here real quick. Okay, I guess before we go any further, actually, <laughs> should we um, talk about our biases? Because this is going to get pretty, um, you know, pretty political. For this, this, may, this is a spicy conversation. We may have some listeners uh, who, who, you know, not everybody has the same opinion, right? So we may say things or, or share ideas that may, you know, I don't know, be spicy. So should we talk about kind of where we're coming from? From a, a religious perspective before we kind of talk about, start talking about this in relation to religion? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that would actually be a good idea. So do you want to start or do you want me to go first? Uh, how about you go first and then I'll go second. Okay. So um, cards on the table for me. I, I'm i an atheist. I'm a non-believer. So you're going to get that angle from me. Uh, however, I was raised Catholic. I was brought up in the Catholic Church. Uh, I did four of the five uh, sacraments. You know, First Communion. I was baptized. Um, I was confirmed and my confirmation in the church, uh, was a, was kind of what made me stop believing in religion because it very much became this thing in my family where I, I had a bunch of questions about, by the time I start getting to 17, you know, 16, 17, 18, I have a bunch of questions about the religion. I don't get satisfying answers. And instead I just get kind of told you have to do this because you have to do this because it's important to your dad, important to your family. Um, not because god wants you to or because of your relationship with god or because of this having any sort of spiritual significance like my parents weren't particularly spiritual they were just i think like a lot of catholics you know just kind of fair weather ones that went that went sometimes during the year there were times in my life when i when we went regularly and there were times when we didn't um and so i i you know i put up with it i sucked it up i did what my parents wanted me to do even though i didn't really believe in that stuff anymore and, and being forced to do something against my will that I didn't believe in kind of was like, okay, this is all bullshit. That was kind of my, <laughs> the conclusion I came to. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've had a long journey. And I think this is kind of how we all work, uh, figuring out, well, what do we believe? What is right? What is, what is the meaning of life and stuff? So, you know, I, I feel pretty confident and comfortable now at 37 years old, reading a lot of different philosophy, reading, you know, learning a lot of history, getting my history degree, kind of a grasp on the world. I am a humanist, like I can identify very much as a humanist, and that's why I'm a socialist or libertarian socialist. I value humanity kind of over everything else. So things that are good for people and take care of people, I'm for. I think that's what institutions and governments should be for, is to take care of people. Um, and anything that is, you know, going to be depriving those, those, no, you know, uh, things needed to survive those necessities, uh, or freedoms, if you want to look at it that way, I, I'm not about that. And I don't think, uh, institutions need to be doing those things. And when I say institutions, I mean, you know, things like churches or religions, things like corporations and things like governments. So, um, so that's where I'm coming from. You're not going to get a Christian perspective from me. You're not, you're going to get a critical eye from me. So just kind of, you know, take my perspective with a grain of salt in that regard, listener, and decide, you know, come to these conclusions on your own reader stuff. Thomas, what about you? 
So I grew up in the Methodist church and then later uh, ended up spending a couple of years in the Messianic movement. If I was going to characterize myself, I'd say I'd probably be an agnostic. At one point, uh, people thought I was going to be a pastor in the Methodist church. Um, so I'm kind of more educated than the average bear in some, in some instances. Um, you know, I... I also consider myself a humanist. Um, probably one of the reasons why I define myself as agnostic now. Um, you know, I grew up in the church. The church was really, you know, one of my safe places coming up. So I understood a lot of the theology there and everything. But as time has gone on, I've kind of fallen off, uh, partially because a lot of churches, you know, tend to be more about the culture than the actual faith which there is a difference and you know, the dangerous direction of Christian nationalism has really started to influence religion as a whole, which is why I've kind of taken a step back now. Hmm. Yeah. That's about where I'm at. So do you, how oh, I'm like the, I'm all, also, this is important. I wasn't forced to go to church by my parents. Um, I kind of forced myself to go to church. There's one other church going person in my family. And then the rest of them are basically pretty big, either agnostics or atheists or, or Wiccan in some cases. Interesting. So I had a bit of a, yeah, I had a bit of a diverse background. I think that's cool. And I would certainly say that you, you, you are very well read, you know, and you, you, you have, uh, you do have, you gleaned a lot, learned a lot from your various perspectives, and so you brought those to the table. So uh, I feel that, man. Well, thank you. So let's. Okay, so we we hit number one, the cult of tradition. I guess let's keep on rolling. Uh, let's go ahead and do a lot of these are going to be shorter than that first one. Uh, let's go ahead and do number two. You want me to read? Or sure. Is yeah, you? you go ahead and read them. I've been talking a lot. <laughs> okay. Traditionalism implies the, the rejection of modernism. Both fascists and Nazis worship technology, while traditionalist think thinkers usually reject it as a, as a negation of traditional spiritual values. However, even though Nazism was proud of its industrial achievements, its praise of modernism was only the surface of an ideological based upon ideology based upon blood and earth, blood and bloodin. Rejection, I guess that's a the German translation, or, or I guess probably from yeah, language. I guess that's like a book or something. It's yeah, blood and earth in, in German, I believe. Yeah, the rejection of the modern world was disguised as a, as a rebuttal of the capitalistic way of life, but it mainly concerned the rejections of the spirit of 1789 and of 1776, 1776, of course. The Enlightenment, the age of reason, is seen as the beginning of modern depravity. In this sense, your fascism can be defined as irrationalism. So, like, so that's what he means as a rejection of modernism. When we think of modernism, we usually think of you know modernity, things uh, progress, things getting better. We have society, you know, uh, liberalism is inherently like a part, you know, extension of this modernism. But like traditionalism implies a rejection of modernism. So this taking this to its logical end, they're saying, no, actually the age of reason, the enlightenment, the things that we talk about being so great and that influenced, you know, our founding fathers 
that stuff's actually when we started going wrong <laughs> is what they're saying is, is this perspective. Uh, and so that's why he's calling it, uh, Echo's calling it irrationalism. So we've got traditional cult of traditionalism, number two, rejection of modernism. Uh, let's do, go ahead and do number three, if you don't mind. Irrationalism also depends on the cult of action for action's sake. Action being beautiful in itself, it must be taken before or without any previous reflection. Thinking is a form of emasculation. Therefore, culture is suspect insofar as it is identified with critical attitudes. Distrust of the intellectual world has always been a symptom of your fascism. From Goering's alleged statement, when I hear talk of culture, I reach for my gun. To the frequent use of such expressions as degenerate intellectuals, eggheads, effort snobs, universities are a nest of reds. The official fascist intellectuals were mainly engaged in attacking modern culture and the liberal intelligentsia for having betrayed traditional values. So I, I, I kind of like the way this guy writes. I don't know. It's very reflective. Action for action's sake. Like, does that, I guess if we think back a couple of years ago during the Trump presidency, do we feel that there was any, you know, action for action's sake going on? Like, and what, what did he say? Thinking is a form of emasculation. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think yeah, I see that. I've, I've seen that in American culture a lot in the past 15 years. Like, just kind of you, know, like, you can see it well you can also see it in the GOP's funding of education which is non-existent yeah absolutely and it's just like this performative sort of thing it's action being beautiful in itself so just mm -hmm. do the, the doing something's the important thing it doesn't matter what you're doing or how you're doing it uh but we're just going to do things um because I'm going to build a wall that already exists Exactly. That's a that's a great example. Um, do you want to do number four? This one's short and sweet. Yeah. No syncretistic faith can withstand analytical criticism. The critical spirit makes distinction, and to distinguish is a sign of modernism. In modern culture, the scientific community praises disagreement as a way to improve knowledge. For your fascism. Disagreement is treason. Disagreement is treason. I think we could just use that as the shorthand for number four. Disagreement is treason. And so this is, again, this is totalitarianism, right? We usually think of this. We think of a dictator, totalitarianism. Well, that's, that's part of this. That's part of what fascism is. If you have to fall in line, you have to agree. You have to be a sycophant or a yes person. Otherwise, get out. Now, if we want to you know, apply this to kind of the broader conversation, I've got articles. I don't want to spend a million years talking about it, but I'm going to make reference to the uh, Mercy Culture Church here in Fort Worth. And there's been well-documented, uh, uh, I guess, how, how should I say it? There has been good documentation on uh, what they've been up to, how they have been outspoken in regards to influencing uh, the politics here in Tarrant County and in Fort Worth, particularly with Bill Weyburn, and then also in the, the race for uh, district judge. Um, they, they are not shy and this is not just here in fort worth but across the country evangelicals are have you know the mask has essentially come off and they're not being shy about wanting to influence the state influence politics and so in that sense you look at those churches and there is this 
there is this disagreement is treason sort of attitude where you have to kind of believe what we believe. You have to fall in line with us. Or if you're if you're not, then you're against us and you're, you're preventing us from what we're trying to do. So this, you know, you can apply again, like he said at the beginning, you can kind of apply these to a lot of things. This isn't just fascism, but this is his 14 things. It's like if you get some of these, however many, you know, you need for fascism to coalesce, this is kind of the ingredients that you need for it. Um, number and so go ahead and read number five and then I'll, I'll hit number six. Awesome. Besides disagreement, this, I'm sorry, let me start over. Besides, disagreement is a sign of diversity. Your fascism grows up and seeks for consensus by exploiting and exacerbating the natural fear of difference. The first appeal of a fascist or prematurely fascist movement is an appeal against the intruders. Thus, your fascism is racist by definition. So number five, kind of how I notated it on my thing is like essentially the fear of difference. And he's kind of saying this is the extension of disagreement is treason. If you're disagreeing, it's because you're different. And so I, in there, it's an inherently fear of people being different, whether that's having different ideas, having a different skin color, being from a different place, speaking a different language. It's this, you know, and this is a primal fear. I think you could say people, humans at, at a certain level, we're all scared of things that are different than us to a certain extent um but this is kind of taking it to its you know most extreme end so that's why he says earth fascism is racist by definition it's inherently racist uh or fascism and this word er by the way i just want to kind of uh, you are is kind of if listener if you have never seen this written before it's just you are fascism um you are hyphen fascism this you, you uh that word kind of is uh implies like a meta terminology for like if you want to look at it like meta fascism like overarching fascism like zooming out and like the thing that connects it all together so uh i'm trying to I'm trying to think of a better idea the, so the first time i saw this was on a magic the gathering card called ur dragon and it was a gigantic dragon that was the mother of all the dragons and it had a picture of this with a bunch of dragons underneath that were like the, all the baby dragons um, and so the Ur dragon is like the mother of the dragons, like Ur fascism, you could say is like the progenitor or the origin of the, of fascism as an enemy. That's what that word means. I know that's kind of a weird word. Okay. Number six, uh, Ur fascism derives from individual or social frustration. I just want to marinate on that one for a second. Individual or social frustration. Experiencing a lot of that lately. Okay, continuing on. That is why one of mm. the most typical features of the historical fascism uh, was the, quote, appeal to a frustrated middle class. A class suffering from an economic crisis or feelings of political humiliation, which, by the way, before I get any further, this is all things that characterize, you know, 1920s and 1930s Germany and Italy. Yep. Um, frightened by the pressure of lower social groups, in our time, w meaning when he was growing up in Italy, when the old proletarians are becoming petty bourgeoisie and the lumpen are largely excluded from the political scene, the fascism of tomorrow will find its audience in this new majority. Now, this is kind of some Marxist language, essentially proletarians being the lot, the local, the bottom class, right? When the old proletarians are becoming petty bourgeoisie, which is you're essentially your middle class, your your little bougie people the, the lower bourgeoisie and then the lupin proletariat is kind of like this middle area between the middle and lower classes 
Marxist analysis kind of views these different groups of people as having different motives uh, during a class struggle. So very often the Lumpen proletariat and or the petty bourgeoisie um, side with the ruling class in a struggle because their 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 existence or their safety kind of depends on the continuation of that ruling class. Uh, if you if that class is overthrown and a new one comes in, if you're part of this you know successful middle class area. You could be wiped out. You could lose everything that you earned. So very often these people kind of side with, with the bourgeoisie. Uh, however, not always. And really because, this, because of this swayness, if you're able to prevent that from happening in class struggle, if you're able to, you know, if, if the, if the uh, proletariat is able to kind of, you know, influence and maintain the petty bourgeoisie and the lumpen proletariat, then that's usually a good sign for, you know, for winning that class struggle. Sorry, I'm getting way off into Marxist theory. Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, what do you think of that, Thomas? Appeal to the middle class, a frustrated middle class. Yeah, and you see that in every in every uh, in every society, you know, especially when there's there's fascist undertones, because you have you always have you know some economic crisis, and not everyone really understands the reasons for it, and that becomes prime opportunity for fascists to kind of come in and reshape people's minds and tell them who to blame. Mm-hmm. And there's political power inher- there too. Inherently, we always look for somebody to blame or something to blame. Absolutely. And that middle class is kind of, I think, easy to influence too, from that perspective. Like, you know, and we're all kind of this way and no one likes instability, but especially in a uh, free market capitalist society where the markets rule all well the economy really likes stability too the economy does not like instability uh so very often for financial reasons alone uh you know the middle class is appealed to when things are unstable it's like oh yeah like you're saying let's uh let's find a scapegoat let's blame the workers you know fighting for higher minimum wage for instance uh rather uh, a modern <laughs> a modern day example is gas prices went up oh joe biden did that exactly fantastic and that that drives me nuts for decades, the president gets blamed or gets stuck with the, 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 you know, the responsibility of the gas prices. President has nothing to do with that. Other than, the only way that they can influence gas prices is like signing an executive order, using emergency reserves, and that is going to have a minuscule effect on the, like within a five to 10 cent range of effect. That's about all the president mm-hmm. can do. Again, like it's OPEC, it's the oil producing countries that all run a cartel. They set the prices that they want the gas to run at it's totally up to them and if you don't make them happy they run that production down russia's doing this with its own gas pipeline right now in eastern europe because of the thing with ukraine and because of nato and the european countries backing and helping ukraine and it going on this long now russia has bumped its gas pipeline which by the way heats all of the homes of most of europe you know most of the homes in europe that use natural gas um they've decreased that to about 20 percent of the normal flow so, you know, you're getting 20% availability versus your 100%. That's, you're losing four-fifths of what you had. That's Their prices over there have skyrocketed as a result of this. This is exactly how gas prices and oil prices work. When those countries decide, blah, 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 we want to set it at this or that, that's what they do. So it's not Biden. Did Joe Biden do that too? It's not <laughs> Biden. And the, the low ones under Trump weren't, weren't, weren't Trump either. Like that's, I don't know. Oh. Sorry. I know we're getting. Because no one was driving because we had a whole pandemic going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good point. Uh, that's a really good example. Uh, I'll do a couple more. Number seven, to people who feel deprived in a clear social identity, 
which I think when things are unstable, especially if you're growing up in an unstable society as a young person, it is unclear as to like your role in things. What is your identity? Urfascism says that their only privilege is the most common one, to be born in the same country. So this is the nationalism side of it. This is the origin of nationalism. Besides, the only ones who can provide an identity to the nation are its enemies. We define ourselves by what we are not. It's interesting. I forgot he said this. Uh, thus, at the root of the Ur-Fascist psychology, there is a, quote, obsession with a plot. Hmm. Possibly an international one. The followers, quote, must feel besieged. The easiest way to solve the plot is to appeal to xenophobia. But the plot must also come from the inside. Jews are usually the best target because they have the advantage of being at the same time inside and outside. In the U.S., a prominent instance of the plot obsession is to be found in Pat Robertson's The New World Order. But as we have recently seen, there are many others. He doesn't come out and say this. What did you, let me ask you, Thomas, before I say it, what do you think he means about Jews being on the inside and the outside? Uh, Jews somehow being accepted by most people as white, but also, you know, still being immigrants in, in some fashion. Yeah, I think so. They kind of have the, the the xenophobic factor to them. Yes. So I okay, we haven't even mentioned this really at all yet, but race is inherently tied into this. Like I guess we said race, you know, it's inherently racist or whatever, but that's really all we said. But race is very much a part of it, fascism being a promotion of an extension of white supremacy, white nationality, you know, it's, it's the white race. Um, and, and so the Jews, you know, obviously historically for thousands of years have been a scapegoat for this. Um, but that, you know, I want to read this, but there's other articles I want to refer the, the listener to. We're not gonna have time to, you know, obviously get into all of them this in depth, but there, there are connecting threads from all of these things. And, and one of them is essentially, you know, this, this kind of white supremacist, undertone that's the same thing in the christian national you know uh, the evangelical sector where i'll have to i'll, I'll grab it here in a second I, I highlighted it in one of the other articles anyways i'll continue on i keep getting sidetracked sorry so obsession with the plot feeling besieged that's number seven number eight the followers must feel humiliated by the ostentatious wealth and force of their enemies and then he says when i was a boy i was taught to think englishmen as the five meal people they ate more frequently than the poor but sober Italians. Jews are rich and help each other through a secret web of mutual assistance. However, the followers must be convinced that they can overwhelm the enemies. Thus, by a continuous shifting of rhetorical focus, the enemies are at the same time too strong and too weak. Fascist governments are condemned to lose wars because they are con constitutionally incapable of objecting uh, I'm sorry, uh, constitutionally incapable of objectively evaluating the force of the enemy. What do you think of this contradiction? This, the enemy being too strong and too weak. Like, do you see that? Do you, do you, do we have parallels for that with maybe? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, look at how they, the GOP, depicts the democratic party you know <laughs> oh too dumb to win right 
but somehow they're simultaneously so nefarious that they've been able to steal an entire election, even though, mm. by their own admission, Trump has packed the courts with judges who were there for the sole purpose of, of overturning the election should Trump lose. But those sneaky Democrats <laughs> still somehow found a way to win by basically following the actual policy and procedures of our actual election. Yep. They are somehow both too stupid yet too smart. Exactly. That's I think the Democratic Party is probably the, uh, maybe the best example exactly. But it's not but it's not that's just that too, you know, it's, you could extend that to any of the various activist groups, you know, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, which again, by the way, Antifa is not a real organization. They don't nope. they don't exist legally. <laughs> just a name people could think um but yeah at the same thing these people are too dumb too disorganized too woke too much infighting too ignorant blah 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 um but at the same time they're a threat to our nation and they're a threat to property and they're a threat you know existentially to the white race you know blah blah <laughs> it's kind of insane you know insane i think as we you know continue to go through this this is you know this is what people you kind of refer, you know, talk about being crazy when, 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 we, when people are espousing these things. You know, this is when you zoom out and think about it for a minute, this stuff doesn't make any sense. But kind of like how he said at the beginning, it doesn't matter. It's not supposed to. Uh, it's more about the emotion than anything else. And if you get people emotional enough, then you're able to you know, kind of get them on board. Um, I'll do one more, Thomas, and then I'll throw it back to you. Um, okay. For Ur fascism, there is no struggle for life, but rather life is lived for struggle. Thus, pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. It is bad because life is permanent warfare. This, however, brings about an Armageddon complex. Since enemies have to be defeated, there must be a final battle after which the movement will have control of the world. But such a, quote, final solution implies a further era of peace, a golden age, which contradicts the principle of permanent war. No fascist leader has ever succeeded in solving this predicament. So another contradiction. We had enemies being too strong and too weak. Now we have life is about struggle. Life is pain. Life is permanent war constantly at battle and um peace is trafficking with the enemy so how can you ever be at peace how can you ever win right because peace to to be at peace if you're doing war you have to win or i guess lose <laughs> the war right uh to end up at peace so again if you like you have to win and lose it's it's fascism we're doing both ends of the spectrum yeah, I mean, I guess it's extension of the previous one of the enemies being the enemies are too strong and they win and they're too weak and they lose. You know, I guess it's it is both. I don't know. It's just weird. Okay, so I'm gonna have to pause here for a second because this is the second time that this thing is is calling me. So I read this article. It's also gonna be down below in the show notes. Thomas, I, I sent it like last minute, so I don't know if you've seen this. Um, it's a Jacobin article written from in 2021. Um, titled Today's Evangelicism Was Forged in the Fight Against Communism and Feminism. And it's a it's a book, it's an interview with this woman who wrote a book um about 
you know, uh, kind of Trump and Christian nationalism and like this, you know, the, the intersections therein and stuff. And she said some interesting things that I think kind of harken back to this, this, this earth fascism thing. Let's see if, uh, she's, her name is Kristen Cobes Dumez. Um, and she says on the surface, okay, she's asked a question. He says, there are a lot of debates over Trump's demographics and their motivations, but they're maybe no better representative of the red hot core Trump base than white evangelicals. And he's like, why? Uh, and she says on the surface, it absolutely seems like hypocrisy because Trump's, you know, not religious, right? He's not a shining. When you think of a good religious person that does good deeds and helps people and, you know, you don't look at Trump and he's not, he's not who you comes to mind. So this is like, why, how did, how did that happen? Um, she says, but historically speaking, what evangelicals mean by family values always comes down to white patriarchal power. If you go back to 1960s and 70s during the emergence of the religious right, you see that issues they originally mobilized around were the authority of white parents to make choices about their children in light of racial desegregation efforts and the assertion of traditional masculinity against both feminism and anti-war sentiment in the Vietnam era. What links these things together is the assertion of white patriarchal authority. To the extent that Trump symbolizes the same kind of ethos, we aren't really talking about hypocrisy or a betrayal of ideas at that point. And so what she kind of continues to go on, again, I'm not going to read all this, but like I recommend the, the, the reader go check this out because this is incredibly, her arguments kind of hear out through, the, through the, the book, which obviously I haven't read, but through the interview are very interesting. She kind of ties this to masculinity. And so like these masculinity things that I'm about, I'm going to hit a couple more of these to me directly relate to this or fascism that we're looking at. Um, and it's kind of a view of what it means to be a man. And like this, what we were just talking about going on a constant crusade and fighting an eternal war in the conservative community in a lot of times, you know, religious or traditional house households, you know, among whites, Latinos, what, you know, African-Americans, Protestants, you know, you could classify as evangelicals as well. Like there's this uh, certain perspective of the patriarch, of the man, uh, of, of, uh, of his role in his family, protecting his family, fighting, you know, the others, the outsiders. And so she, let me find it, see if I can find the quote. She essentially says, instead of theological criteria, uh, we define evangelical. Uh, what, what comes to define evangelicalism is instead your stance on issues of gender, sexuality, the embrace of patriarchal authority, a belief in female submission. That's how you determine who's in and out. That's not the quote I'm looking for, but what she's kind of talking about here is some guy came up with a list of what evangelical means and she's going like, okay, well, if you divide this by different groups of people culturally, we might say these people are evangelical by your list, but there's more going on here because these people don't and they should maybe. Uh, your list isn't, doesn't suffice. There's something unlistable here, some discombobulation, right? Something that doesn't make sense, like kind of what we were talking about earlier. So we're going to have to find some other way to kind of put these things together. And she's saying, essentially, it's your actions. It's you showing, hey, I you know, believe in traditional gender roles, or I believe in patriarchy. I believe in female submission. Those are what make you evangelical. Not so much your interpretation of scripture, like it used to be 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago. Uh, and like the different sects, the different churches, the different, uh, you know, denominations, they all disagreed on like very specific, like scripture interpretations. And she's saying now none of that stuff matters. 
Uh, they don't care because again, it's not about the ideas. <laughs> it's, it's about, you know, what, what it makes you feel like. And so, okay, here's the, here's the masculinity part that I was talking about. And I have, tell me if you've heard of this book, Thomas, cause I, I, I like, I feel like it rings a bell, but I, my family, you know, I, you, I feel like you've got closer ties to conservatism, even claiming to be right. a, a you know, former conservative yourself than I do. So she says, um, when we think of evangelical politics, Often people go immediately to the family values politics, which again, she said is, you know, white masculinity, white, you know, domestic issues and issues of sex and gender. There is a good reason for that. Evangelicals talk about that an awful lot. Uh, What is often forgotten is just how distinctive evangelical views on foreign policy are as well. I want to explore that connection. The first time I became curious about the topic of evangelical masculinity was actually more than 15 years ago when I read John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. Have I've you heard, heard of, of it? Okay. I've never read it. Okay, I haven't either. And there's something in the back of my mind, I'm like, what? this sounds familiar, this rings a bell, which sketches a very militant and militaristic conception of Christian manhood. God is a warrior God, and men are made in his image. Every man has a battle to fight. I was startled by this. I'm a Christian myself, and that's not really my conception of Christian manhood or Christianity. This was also back in 2005 or six, the early years of the Iraq war. Uh, and so, you know, I have a woman here saying she's Christian herself, and she's like, this is a unique perspective of Christianity that I don't necessarily identify with. But this, she goes on to say, this book went on to sell more than 4 million copies. Every evangelical man, boy, and many women were reading that book. At the time, I was also seeing this survey data that white evangelicals were much more likely than other Americans to support the Iraq war, to support preemptive war in general, uh, to condone the use of torture, to embrace aggressive foreign policy. It was just a basic question to me as a historian of gender. What might these things have to do with the other? This conception of warrior masculinity is almost everywhere in conservative evangelical spaces. It is used to defend masculine leadership in the home, which is seen as the building block and the fundamental organizing principle of society. Patriarchal authority, a husband's authority over his wife and children, is directly linked to God's will for society. Okay, so now we're getting into the God's will, the God's influence. This is what God wants. You need strong leaders in the home, strong leaders in the church, also men, strong leaders in the nation as well. You need to ensure that those men are not emasculated and that their authority is not challenged whether it's in the home or in the church or in the nation so like i know we're kind of going all over the place thomas but like what do you think of the role of masculinity and like what it means to be a man and how how we identify that with you know these this this fascism thing like what it, do you see the connection do you feel that does that resonate with you oh yeah yeah i don't know if you're familiar with something called the manosphere but it's yeah. like this entire series of YouTubers and podcasters on the internet who are basically redefining manhood. And it, you look at it, it's almost all within a, a conservative ideology. You know, they want Christianity back. Um, it's very misogynistic. Um, very much, you know, centered on woman needs to stay home and they'll replace blah, 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 blah. Men can do what they want. Um, and we're seeing this everywhere now. You know, it's, it's taking over young men. What they're trying to do is redefine masculinity for a generation of men. Because it's 
it's it's basically you know it's almost like they're marketing toxic masculinity mm. because as time's gone on i think men have for the most part learned how to be non-toxic and we're starting to you know deal with our traumas we're starting to deal with you know some of the worst aspects of being a man you know i'm sorry to say we are the number one domestic abusers we are the number one you know people to commit rape you know whenever a crime is committed committed you know you think of men committing it first and i think what's happening is you know you have a you have one movement saying hey we need to correct our behavior you have another movement saying no you know it's not our fault that we're in trouble. It's whoever said, you know, whoever told on us is is the reason we're in mm-hmm. trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this defense of what already was. Yeah, it's but isn't necessarily true. You know, you see a lot of these alpha male podcasts mm-hmm. doing that. It's a great example. They're really big on that space. Yeah, that's part of the manosphere. Alpha. So there's this YouTuber that I watch. Uh, I, a lot of the YouTube I watch is political and like interviews and theory and stuff. However, I do like to turn my brain off also and just watch junk. Uh, and so there's this YouTuber that I watch. I think she's great named Chad Chad, who just kind of covers internet pop culture in like 10 minute little funny, funny videos. I don't know. I almost feel like I'm too old to watch stuff like this because it's it's definitely she's not quite Zoomer. She's maybe elder millennial. I don't know. She might, I don't know. Young person talking about TikTok content and internet content and stuff that I would otherwise never come across or hear about. But uh, a reoccurring theme on her thing is like what exactly what you're talking about. This man of fear, these this misogynistic men, uh, these men podcasts where they're just kind of like espousing, like you said, toxic masculinity. Exactly. That's like a big part well, of the internet. It's it's called manosphere, not manosphere, but manosphere. Manosphere, exactly. Like, yeah. like an atmosphere, but with men. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. And so, like, sh- you know, that's something that I've kind of noticed is that you have these men, but then you also have women, you know, influencers in these spaces that are supporting these ideas. Right. And saying mm-hmm. that, like, I don't want my man to cry. Don't don't feel your emotions. That turns me off. I don't want a man that's going to be a wuss or whatever. Right. Like that's that that's being reinforced by i think on the other on the opposite side of the gender aisle right like it's not just guys saying this to each other because there's certainly that but there's a subsect of what what amber you know introduced to me this term trad wives traditional wives women you know often blonde white women who are wanting to you know spread uh their white seed and uh that sounds terrible when i said it like that but like it's a thing where people are like where they're like hey I want to mate with other white dudes or whatever. I want to be the representative, you know, white housewife, blah, blah, blah. Like the aesthetic that comes to mind on this, and, Amber, and again, this is something that Amber kind of introduced me in her own research is like this cottage core stuff. Apparently, white nationalism is, uh, you know, in secret little baby drops, kind of like dog whistle sort of way, being spread through this quote unquote cottage core like aesthetic which is kind of like a way of like styling mm-hmm. your home and also how, how you dress. But those things are kind of essentially tied to in some weird, loose ways to like Odinism. Uh, and so it's like being one with your culture and being one, you know, with, with, with again, traditionalism, right. But kind of dating, you know, tying it back to Scandinavianism or your, you know, Celtic roots or whatever, but then taking that even further and saying that this, you know, this is the, 
oh, the supreme stuff, the original stuff, this is the desirable stuff, you know, and, and, and to put it that sort of way. So again, kind of this like white supremacist stuff, it's not overt, but it's like talking about it through these different, you know, like aesthetics, like cultural sort of things on the internet. Like it's, I don't know, the internet's a very strange place, uh, but yeah, this is kind of something that I've recently kind of become aware of and, come, and I'm just like, man, this is weird, but these ideas are pervasive, right? So I guess, well, let's get back to, to the list. We've got five more, four or five more to hit. Um, almost done. Uh, Thomas, I'll do I'll do the elitism one, and then I'll let you hit the okay. last the last ones. Um, so number ten is elitism, and he says elitism is a typical aspect of any. Uh, yeah, I I read that right. Did I read the first one? No, I didn't. I missed not. Yeah, no, we did. We did the two contradictions. So number eight was the enemies are at the same time yeah. too strong and too weak. Uh, number nine was pacifism is trafficking with the enemy, and life is permanent warfare. Okay. So number 10, elitism is a typical aspect of any reactionary ideology insofar as it is fundamentally aristocratic and aristocratic and militaristic elitism cruelly implies, quote, contempt for the weak. There you go. I was just talking about you're not a man if you're crying, if you're if you're in touch with your emotions, you're weak, contempt for the weak or fascism can only advocate a popular elitism. Every citizen belongs to the best people of the world. The members of the party are the best among citizens. Every citizen can or ought to become a member of the party, but there cannot be patricians without plebeians. In fact, the leader, knowing that his power was not delegated to him democratically, but was conquered by force, also knows that force is based upon the weakness of the masses. They are so weak as to need and deserve a ruler. Since the group is hierarchically organized according to a military model, every subordinate leader despises his own underlings, and each of them despises his inferiors. This reinforces the sense of mass elitism. Where do you see that? Is there a specific example that we can point to? Uh, GOP again? GOP, yeah. I mean, I'm, I was thinking like the Trump administration specifically, like just kind of hearing about, yeah. you know, yeah. like what that is the GOP now. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're good point. <laughs> but like this, you know, you would hear Trump just treating everybody like like dog shit. Right. And then like, you know, his 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 underlings treating their underlings like dog. Shit. And I guess, you know, like as they say, shit rolls downhill or whatever. Right. But uh that's I don't know. This this is this is a characteristic. This mass mass elitism. It's kind of kind of. Would you say this is contradictory as well in a way or no? Not really. I'd say it's pretty poor for the course, but it, it is contradictory in the way that most of these these fascist char characteristics are contradictory. You know, the people are you know too weak and too strong to need a leader at the same time. You know. Yeah. That's a, that's it's kind of odd, to, you know. It's kind of like they're they're. It's kind of like this informed patriotism they got going on. Yeah, it's weird, and it's like, I don't know if this is. I don't know if anybody else sees this or feels this, or if this is even like implied in the text. But from what I kind of take it from this is like, it seems very, 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 very individualistic. Like it's the opposite of empathy, right? Like you if you're even slightly empathetic, like you understand that whatever, you know, you're being put through, like, or you're putting other people through that that's going to have an effect. 
But I guess if, you know, if fear is the name of the game and control is the name of the game and you're like controlling people through fear, then I guess, you know, I guess then you're scared of losing control and appearing weak. And so in those conditions, I guess, you know, you're not going to take that risk and appear weak. You're going to treat everybody like crap all the time. This, you know, not, not, as I'm talking through this, it's just making me think of like so many Star Trek episodes with like Klingons or Romulans like infighting with each other. <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Kent, content for the week. Uh, Thomas, do you want to hit? Num- do you still have it available? You want to hit number 11? Yep. Awesome. <clears throat> In such a perspective, everybody is educated to become a hero. In every mythology, the hero is an exceptional being, but in your fascist ideology, heroism is the norm. This cult of heroism is strictly linked with the cult of death. It is not by chance that a motto of the, of the phalangists was Viva la Muerte. In English, it should be translated as Long Live Death. In non-fascist societies, the, the lay public is told that, the, that death is unpleasant but must be faced. By contrast, the 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 Ur-fascist hero craves heroic death. Must oh, be did I really faced and with non-fascist. dignity? Okay, with dignity, believers are told that it is the painful way to reach a supernatural happiness. By contrast, the Ur-fascist hero craves heroic death, advertised as the best reward for a heroic life. The Ur-fascist hero is impatient to die. In his impatience, he more frequently sends other people to die. So, yeah, so we've got the glorification of death, the glorification of sacrifice, right? Sacrifice for, I want to say the greater good, but so far that doesn't seem to be, unless the greater good is the extermination of like everyone different or something. But it's like, whatever the fascist goal is at the yeah, time. That's it. That's that's the greater good. Nailed it. That's you're absolutely right. Um, it's weird to me because like that just number eleven like by itself makes me think <laughs> of post nine eleven rhetoric, <laughs> right? Like this is what people were saying about Islamic extremists. Um, it's a cult yep. of heroism. They were glorifying death and and you know it's it's kind of ironic to, and again i i don't want to paint all muslims uh with that brush that's certainly again this is extremism this is the the extreme fringes and fundamentals you know of that religion there are plenty plenty of great people who practice that don't don't believe these extreme ideas the same thing exists within christianity um there are plenty of great christians out there who don't believe these extreme fringe ideas however the point i'm trying to make here with this episode and like with the stuff that we're reading is that there is a underlying thread of things connecting a large percentage, a large group of these people, and that that group is using their influence to control our nation and our politics or to usurp or gain control of that. And so I'll, well, once we finish with this list, I'll kind of wrap it up explaining how they're doing that. Um, do you want to go ahead and hit uh, number 12? Yeah. Since both hermit, permanent, <laughs> permanent, since both permanent war and heroism are difficult games to play, the Eurofascist transfers his, his will to power to sexual matters. This is the origin of machismo, which implies both disdain for women and intolerance and co- condemnation of non-standard sexual habits, from chastity to homosexuality. 
Since even sex is a difficult game to play, the Eurofascist hero tends to play with weapons. Doing so becomes an ersatz phallic exercise. <laughs> weird. That was actually funny. That's pretty weird, man. Like, but this kind of goes into you know the the what that other uh, author was talking about in regards to like disdain for women, or uh, or you know. Uh, part part of this you know evangelical trend is like the submission rather of women women being submissive so we can kind of see that here i guess in the positive sense of like actively disdaining or having intolerance um for women and then and then obviously you know non-standard again things that are different you know untraditional tech uh you know s sexual habits or whatever um i'll hit 13 and then and then i'll let you do 14 and then we'll we'll start to okay. kind of you know, kind of summarize all this stuff. So 13 says, Ur-fascism is based upon a selective populism, a qualitative populism, as one might say. In a democracy, the citizens have individual rights, but the citizens have in their entirety, uh, in their entirety, have a political impact only from a quantitative point of view. One follows the decisions of the majority. For Ur-fascism, however, individuals as individuals have no rights. And the people is conceived, conceived of as a quality, as a monolithic entity expressing the, quote, common will. Since no large quantity of human beings can have a common will, the leader pretends to be their interpreter. Having lost their power of delegation, citizens do not act. They are only called on to play the role of the people. Thus, the people is only a theatrical fiction. To have a good instance of qualitative populism, we no longer need the Piazza Venezia in Rome or the Nuremberg Stadium. There is in our future a TV or internet populism in which the emotional response of a selective group of citizens can be pre presented and accepted as the voice of the people. Man, that's kind of creepy reading that 25 years in the future, yeah. 27 years in the future uh, from when he wrote it. because. That's exactly what has happened, um, at least in regards to the media sphere, in regards to the, the right wing media sphere. Like they just claim, especially Trump did this when he was in office, claim to know the will of the people. Um, but like you said a second ago, it's almost like they're just making it up, <laughs> right? Just mm -hmm. whatever they want it to be that day. Uh, they're the great. The will of the people's whatever my problem is today. Exactly, and I think you could compare that to that's not unlike. Um, being a, you know, religious zealot or whatever, is that the right word? Or someone, you know, someone who claims yeah. to speak to God. Uh, and so oh, I know what, you know, I know, I know what he's saying. I'm going to, I'm going to be the interpreter for you guys. I'm the only one who can hear him or whatever. Right. Like that's kind of the same sort of idea. So oh, he can, oh, that's not the rest. So he continues on because of this qualitative populism or fascism must be against rotten parliamentary governments. So it's anti-democratic. Which we're seeing again, people on the right, especially you know the, the super far right, they are masks off about getting rid of this democracy. They weren't democratic in the first place. Uh, continuing on, it says one of the first sentences uttered by Mussolini in the Italian Italia Parliament was "I maniples." Maniples being a subdivision of the traditional Roman legion. As uh, oh, I could I'm sorry, I skipped a line was I could have transformed this death and gloomy place into a bivouac for my maniples, uh, for his legion. 
As a matter of fact, he immediately found better housing for his manipulas, but a little later, he liquidated the parliament. <laughs> Whenever a politician casts doubt on the legitimacy of a parliament because it no longer represents the voice of the people, we can smell er, fascism. And then uh, go ahead and go hit the last point for us, buddy. I got tiny, tiny words on my screen. Sorry. Oh, you're good. Your fascism speaks Newspeak. Newspeak was invented by Orwell in 1984 as the official language of Inksoc, the Engl English socialism. But element of your fascism are common to different forms of dictatorship. All the Nazi or fascist schoolbooks ma made use of an impoverished vocabulary and an elementary, elementary syntax in order to limit the instruments for complex and critical reasoning. But we must be ready to identify other kinds of newspeak, even if they take the apparently innocent form of a popular talk show. Oh, wow. Fox News. <laughs> Fox News. <laughs> Fox News. Yeah. And it's, On the morning. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to, to hit like you kind of, you said it there, in order to limit the instruments for complex and critical reasoning. So like, it's kind of like the, you know, this is what is actively trying to do this anti-intellectualism, right? We're trying to dumb down the masses. We're trying to make it to where they would be incapable of of reasoning them, them themselves out of this. Mm -hmm. On the morning of July 27th, 1943, I was told that according to radio reports, fascism had collapsed and Mussolini was under arrest. When my mother sent me out to buy, buy the newspaper, I saw that the papers at the nearest newsstand had different titles. Moreover, after seeing the headlines, I realized that each newspaper said different things. I bought one of them blindly and read a message on the first page signed by five or six political parties among them. The Dem Democrazia, Cristiana, the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, the Par Partito de Azione, and the Liberal Party. Until then, I believed that there was a single party in every country and that in, in Italy it was the Partito Nationalist Fascista. I, I totally just said that wrong. Nationality, fascist. I can't speak Italian, folks. It's okay, buddy. Me too. Now, now I was discovering that in my country, several parties could exist at the same time. Since I was a clever boy, I immediately realized that, that so many parties could not have been born overnight, and they must have existed for some time as clandestine organizations. The message on the front celebrated the end of the, of the dictatorship and the return of freedom Freedom of speech, a press, a political association. These words, freedom, dictatorship, liberty, I now read them for the first time in my life. I was reborn as a free Western man by virtue of these new words. We must keep alert so that the sense of these words will not be forgotten again. Or fascism is still around us, sometimes in plain clothes. It would be so much easier for us if there appeared on the wor world scene somebody saying, I want to reopen Auschwitz. I want the black shirts to parade again in the Italian square. Life is not that simple. Your fascism can come on, come back under the most innocent of disguises. Our duty is to uncover it and point out our point our finger to it of its of, of any of its new instances. Every day in every part of the world, FDR's world words of November fourth, nineteen thirty eight, are worth recalling. I venture the challenging statement that if American democracy ceases to move forward as a living force, seeking day and night by peaceful means to better the lot of our citizens, fascism will grow in strength in our land. 
pretty, I mean, there's a nice little poem here. It's a pretty based FDR quote. I don't think I've actually heard that quote. That's good. Yeah. So yeah. Which so, by by the way, you do have a little bit of that. You know, think of the people, uh, the January sixth insurrectionists with uh, Camp Auschwitz shirts. I mean, yeah. It's pretty obvious. Yep, going hard now, and that's the thing. This is, I don't know if you're the familiar with the term, um, I'm a scatastic, stochastic, stochastic. Oh man, terrorism. I, I, yeah, stochastic. I got to look it up so I know how to say it right. I know I'm saying it wrong. Anyways, <laughs> what this term is essentially, it's terrorism through through rhetoric. So kind of like what you're saying. Like, yeah. You know, the, people, you could look at Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson. He's like a good example of that, where he says stuff that's going to rile people up. But like, he didn't say go bomb that building or go run over that person or go beat up that person. But like, he's implying that you should go do that and, or, or that that's mm -hmm. necessary. Uh, and then people will hear that and go act on it. Right. And so like, this is the, if you've got a loud megaphone, if you've got a loud platform, um, you can use that platform. And so then once you've done that, then you've got people like this who now they've got a platform. And so they are espousing these ideas and wearing those, those terrible shirts. Um, that's that I didn't know about that Thomas, but I'm not surprised one bit. I believe it. I did see some of the photos, uh, of, of some of those, uh, you know, straight up fascists. We know with the, with the, with the flags and everything yep. that was, was crazy. So to finish up, I want to, I want to point us to an article that it's it's not too long, listener. If, if I recommend going reading, it's about three pages long. It's a ProPublica article that I came across earlier this week that is titled "Right Wing Think Tank Family Research Council is Now a Church in the Eyes of the IRS." So this is the enactment of these ideas in regards to a political takeover, right? And they're not the first ones to do this. They certainly won't be the last, but it is a trend that we're seeing more oh. and more. So real quick, I'm just going to read from, from parts of this article. Uh, the Family Research Council's multi-million dollar headquarters sit on G Street in Washington, D.C., just steps from the U.S. Capitol and the White House, a spot ideally situated for its work as a right-wing policy think tank and political pressure group. From its perch at the heart of the nation's capital, the Family Research Council has pushed for legislation banning gender-affirming surgery, filed amicus briefs supporting the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So we can, if we want to point to them as one of the people pushing the, you know, who, who did that, these are one of those groups, um, and yeah. advocated for religious exemptions to civil rights laws. Um, it's longtime head, a former state lawmaker and ordained minister named Tony Perkins claims credit for pushing the Republican platform rightward over the past two decades. Well, what is the FRC? Uh, here's, this is their mission statement from their website. Quote, a nonprofit research and educational organization dedicated to articulating and advancing a family-centered philosophy of public life. In addition to providing policy research and analysis for the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of the federal government, FRC seeks to inform the news media, the academic community, business leaders, and the general public about family issues that affect the nation from a biblical worldview. In the eyes of the IRS, though, it is also a church with Perkins as its religious leader. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, they don't have to pay taxes, taxes anymore, which, you know, that's a whole topic in itself, which maybe we can get into at a later date. How, you know, the whole, the amount of tax corruption 
that is that is in our system. What the tra- Trump 2017 tax bill did, how he took all the deductions away from the middle class, really squeezed the lower middle classes more and the rich much, much less. Um, so now this mm-hmm. this church churches make more money than anything else anyways, right? They don't have to pay taxes on it. So now this is a political organization that is influencing politicians now being able to make more money, not disclose or have to pay any of that, where that money is coming from or pay any of it in taxes. So that's to me like a huge conflict of interest anyways, nation, but it's perfectly legal. Uh, the IRS was sent questions by ProPublica. They did not answer any questions. Um, this one congressman, oh, is a senator, Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island. He's a Democrat. He's had this to say about it. It's far too easy for powerful special interests to hide their donors and uh, using webs of nonprofits. Form 990 filings provide valuable and often the only insight into tax-exempt organizations' income and spending, but law enforcement at the IRS and the DOJ encourage more game playing, which leaves the door wide open for enterprising dark money schemes to exploit the system further. So the IRS and the Department of Justice, whose job it is to to deal with this, this tax-exempt stuff and the shady stuff that could go on there, any corruption that could go on there, they're the ones who are required to like deal with that and investigate those things. But they don't like doing that. Uh, and they encourage, quote, game playing, which to me sounds like negotiating, I guess. So like if you find people doing this, it's like, OK, hey, maybe do X, Y or Z and we'll forgive the rest. I don't know what what is that? What do you think that means? Game playing. Like uh, use it in a sentence again. So the, the lax enforcement at the IRS and the DOJ encourage more game playing which leaves the door wide open for enterprising dark money schemes to exploit the system further. Oh yeah. That, that basically means, you know, what they just said, more dark money schemes are going to happen. Um, family research council trying to be a church. It, I don't believe that. And I think anyone who, I think if they do file, we need to be filing like endless, like audits for the IRS. Cause there's no way they're not going to be politically affiliated hundred percent yeah no and it's and it kind of goes into that like how they're not a church that doesn't say church anywhere in their mission statement or anything but what and they're not the only ones who've done this i'm gonna kind of hit the list here in a second of like other entities that have already done this but essentially if you have quote partner churches or affiliate churches that you're associated with then you can claim to be like a part of like this church network or something and like, well, they do the religious services. They do the classes that are required to be, you know, a church. They do the, you know, all of the stuff that is normally supposed to be a church. It's like, oh, well, this section of our, you know, conglomerate does that. Uh, but we're a part of all of that. So we're a church too. Uh, and apparently that's good enough for the IRS to actually let this happen. So, dude, John Oliver has a thing on churches and it's yeah. ridiculous. Like he tries to start one and, and he meets like half the requirements accidentally. That's right. That's the one he did with Rachel Dratch, right? Where she was. Yes. Like, that is so funny. I forgot about that. Yeah. I, if I can find that on our lady YouTube, of perpetual that. exemption. That's what it was called. Yes. So, yeah, this, you know, that's a, that's a really I'll have to link that in, in the notes because that is a if you haven't seen that episode, that is a really good example of all of these sorts of things. So essentially, just real quick, Billy Graham and his evangel- evangelistic association uh, accused the IRS back in 2013 of like targeting him and this other charity called Samaritan's Purse, uh, and they filed suit 
Uh, and they were able to retain their tax-exempt status, and in 2015, they uh, applied for church status and got it. There's another thing called the Liberty Council, a Florida-based legal nonprofit, which was recla- reclassified as a, quote, association of churches, kind of like what I was talking about a second ago. There's something called the American Family Association in Tulpilo, Mississippi, um, that runs the influential American Family Radio Network, as well as the film studio and magazine, changed, uh, and it in early 2022, earlier this year, changed its designation to a church. Um, so this is a trend. There are more of them doing it as of recently. And kind of what, to your point, Thomas, of like, we should be, A, you know, causing more of a stir about this, hassling, you know, the IRS and the DOJ about this, but B, uh, if you know, play the game too, right? And so the Satanic Temple has been doing this. This is kind of why they exist. If you, you probably like, maybe I've heard of them. They've been making noise, stirring things up now for almost a decade, I want to say. I, uh, full disclosure, donated to the to Satanic Temple, I, I guess, all it takes to be a member is to pay 30 bucks, which you get a t-shirt with that. So it was totally worth it. But I paid 30 bucks for a t-shirt. I'm technically a member of the Satanic Temple. They are the organization that uh, essentially is fighting for abortion rights because they have classified themselves as a church, as an atheistic religious organization. Uh, and so abortion from the Satanic Temple's perspective is a violation of their religious ideas of personal autonomy and freedom. Um, it's actually, I'm forgetting what tenant it is, but it's like the fourth one or the fifth one or something, but it's, you know, uh, one's body is inviolable and subject to one's will alone. It's your body. It's up to you what you do with it. Nobody can violate that yep. or tell you what to do with it. And that's a religious tenet. And so the abortion thing is a violation of that. They even have uh, formalized it in such a way where they have a uh, an abortion ritual that is part of the abortion process. If you are a member of the Satanic Temple, uh, you say this, you do this little ritual, which essentially is like looking at yourself in the mirror and saying a, a one sentence, you know, affirmation to yourself um that is the ritual and and you you know you being denied that religious right uh, of ritual uh, is a violation of of your religious rights so they are currently suing the state of texas this lawsuit started about eight or nine months ago but they're suing the state of texas uh to, to before all before roe v wade and all this stuff changed that that lawsuit's still in, in going through the books um so we'll see how that goes but I, if you're you know if you support as a, as a non-believer myself, uh, we're a minority, right? I think a lot more people out there are actually non-believers, but we're not advocated for in society. And so the, one of the first things that they did was back in like 2013, 2014, uh, in Oklahoma City, they put the Ten Commandments in front of the courthouse and they were like, hey, you know, religious representation, if you're putting the Ten Commandments there, can we put a Baphomet devil statue there? And they were like, no. Uh, you know, Oklahoma City was like, no. And the Satanic Temple was like, well, we're suing you guys because you're supposed to let us do that. And it wasn't just the Satanic Temple. There was a bunch of other organizations that wanted to like put up their own statues. Like there was people wanting to put up a statue of Vishnu. Some Hindus were. Uh, somebody wanted to put up right. a statue of like the spaghetti monster. Uh, and so what they ended up doing was like just taking the Ten Commandments away uh, and just being done with it. And so that's that's the type of activism that they were doing, like just kind of fighting for religious equality for non-believers. So here, with the abortion thing now being way bigger, we would than rather was. no one has religious rights than give you religious rights. Right, exactly, that, right. And that's—I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like, that's ridiculous. That seems fair. I don't know. Uh, so yeah, so they're—you know—they're doing what they can to kind of like fight back against you know these types of churches being having undue influence. 
in politics. And their their founder, Lucian Greaves, says this quote, people act like we're trying to get away with something. Look, these guys want to be a church and yet they're active in these public campaigns, he said. He's like, and they never apply the same questions to the other side. He's like, look, we're just doing what other churches, quote unquote, have been doing for decades now in our country. So, so yeah. So I don't know. This, you know, I think, I think we've made our point. I feel like we really, you know, I know that we didn't even need to probably for every listener out there. Like we all know, <laughs> y'all know this stuff's going on. Um, but I really wanted to try and, you know, sh show the connections of these kind of slightly differing ideas or ideologies, how they're kind of congealing and meshing together in this form of like, you know, evangelical Christianity. And again, if you're evangelical as a listener, this is not to, I don't want to single out individuals. I don't want to say what some person believes is wrong or any of that. Like that's, that's not what we're trying to do here at all, but rather, you know, looking at these ideas of themselves and how these in ideas are influencing certain groups of people and that influencing the politics in our country and especially if you look at the mercy culture stuff here in fort worth and here in tarrant county so thomas do you've got anything else to say to kind of wrap this up before we sign off um fascism is bad <laughs> <laughs> perfect perfect well thank you again for joining us this week as always uh hit us up uh on twitter if you want to you want to got any recommendations or ideas for topics for us to cover news stories for us to cover information on any candidates um we're on twitter at fw review you can hit us up on instagram at fort worth freedom review or send us a gmail at fw freedom review at gmail.com thanks again for listening and we'll catch you guys in a couple weeks bye Bye.